Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. We're here with a new episode this week. And this was a pretty crazy week, news-wise, I suppose. But for that reason, I'm not going to talk about the news initially, and we're going to talk about things that occurred in my practice over the years. And in this day and age, I think everybody's really been watching uh, law enforcement, what they do right, what they do wrong. Mostly what they do wrong has been in the news. God knows I've got enough experience of actually seeing some pretty horrific things that the government and law enforcement do, and I, and I see it really on a day-to-day basis. I think what the average person in society doesn't really know, at least until they get charged with a crime or if they have a relative that's charged with a crime, is that the government cheats all the time in cases. Almost every case I've ever had, there's been some either prosecutorial misconduct or law enforcement lying, cheating, whatever it is. It's not like there's some master string puller who makes a decision to cheat on a case and how to do it. Each prosecution is usually run by relatively young, ambitious people, and they want to win, and not usually because they care about justice, just because they want to win. They want to win because of their own personal ambitions. They want to get to that next job. Uh, They want to get that uh, little gold apple pin to stick on their lapel so that they can put it on their resume when they try to get their next job in a big law firm or whatever. That's really the truth. They're not, I don't really find that they're mostly concerned about justice. Justice is usually secondary. And I know that sounds crazy, but it's true. Um, And uh, defense lawyers are used to it. It happens all the time. I'm thinking back to 1993. I was uh, just starting to work with Jerry Shargell. And we received a call from our client, who was the owner of a number of gas stations in New York City. They were uh, called City Gas, was the name of the gas stations. And they were like all over Brooklyn and, I guess, Queens. And he had told us that his worker had been arrested for murder. You know, it's normal gas station attendant that gets arrested for murder. Apparently, the worker had gotten into some kind of an argument with someone, and it became physical. And our client had allegedly stabbed the victim with the end of an umbrella in the chest and it pierced his heart and it killed him. I mean, this is like, uh, the penguin, you know, gone really bad. This actually happened. So anyway, I was, uh, called, I think it was a Monday night and I was called to go visit him in the precinct in Queens at the 115th, which is where he's being held for processing. And I remember, um, I don't remember what show it was. I was about to watch. This was back when I watched TV. And I remember being pissed that I had to give up my TV time to go see someone in prison. But alas, there I was. So I get over to the precinct, the police precinct, and I see the poor guy in the holding cell. And he looks sad, as you can imagine, being arrested for murder. And the detectives that were working on the case with him were just a few feet away at their desks. And they were really close. And I wanted to interview the client. But I didn't want to do it through the bars where they could hear me asking questions. You know, cops are capable of anything. So I didn't really think it was appropriate they would be listening into our conversation. So I asked the detective that was there, it was a woman, to let me into the holding cell so I could speak to the guy privately. And she looked at me like I was nuts. I'll never forget that look on her face. It's been, you know, almost uh, 30 years. You want to sit in there with them? And I was like too young or dumb to know that that was probably not a great idea. But I, again, I wanted to hear what actually happened and I didn't want 
the detectives hearing my client's statements. I didn't think that was so crazy. Anyway, the detective tells me to say, she said to me, you know, suit yourself. I'll let you in. And she opens up the cage. I walk inside and she locks the door behind me. And I sit down next to the client on this bench. The entire uh, holding cell smelled like piss. And we were the only two people in there. And I needed to question him about his background and uh, whatnot. I needed to find out about his, his, his life, his prior criminal record, if he had any ties to the community, his job, education, issues that would come up when there's a bail hearing. And I also needed to find out what happened that night because that could come up as well. We ended up getting this guy out on bail on a $100,000 bail for a murder case. So that was, a, I had a good bail argument. And in part, it was because of what I collected from him inside this holding cell. Anyway, I'm done with the interview. And I noticed that the detective had left the area where I was in the holding cell with the client. And I started to realize that she wasn't coming back anytime soon, either on purpose or maybe just a coincidence. Anyway, I was right. And uh, after I was done sitting with the guy, I had to wait probably a half an hour. I'm calling for her. I'm banging on the walls and nothing, no response. Nobody's there. And all of a sudden she comes back after a half an hour and she's smirking at me. And it was pretty clear to me, um, you know, that she kept me in there on purpose and I was pissed, but you know, this was a notoriously crooked Queens precinct. And most of them are in Queens and look, there's any Queens, uh, cops that are listening to this, you know, obviously you'd agree with me that the Queens precincts are almost uniformly dirty. And I've actually represented a number of officers over the years from not only that precinct, but other precincts in Queens on criminal charges. This is, you know, in the future since then. I ended up running into that same detective a few years later when she was involved in the search of the offices of the city gas owner, the guy that had called us for uh, the Penguins case. And uh, the fellow's name who owned all the gas stations, name was Gurmeet Singh Dinza. And inside the premises, the offices, there were multiple illegal guns that were found. And I think there was body armor and ammo and, and whatnot. But he was not around when any of that stuff had been found, the owner. And they ended up arresting everybody that was there. And they arrested our client as well. And I remember thinking at the time, well, how could he be guilty of possessing these guns when they had no idea that they were his just because they were found inside the premises? There were a ton of people that had access to it. I ended up getting that pretty serious gun case dismissed for that reason, that there was no what's called constructive possession of the guns. Not actual. You could even have constructive. But, you know, like if you uh, have a gun that's in your jacket pocket, and uh, the jacket is, you know, five feet away from you and they find the gun in your jacket pocket. Well, that's constructive possession of that gun and you're responsible for it. But this doesn't, didn't even rise to that level in this case. And as I said, I got the case dismissed. That was a Brooklyn State case. But alas, like months later, Gurmeet Singh Dinza was arrested again, this time federally in a federal death penalty case for multiple murders. In uh, it was a Brooklyn case. And some of the evidence in that case were the guns that had been found in the office. I had gotten them, I had gotten the, the case dismissed because he was charged with possessing the guns. But now with a murder case, a federal case, a RICO case, we had to relitigate the search, which turned up the guns. And this female detective took the stand and she just lied her ass off 
about how the guns were found in an effort to establish that probable cause existed to search the premises without a search warrant. They were in the area. They heard some uh, gunfire, they claimed, and that's why they searched the area. So they had to establish that probable cause existed to search the premises. Most of the guns ended up being suppressed by the federal judge, which was a pretty big deal in a federal case. Doesn't happen all that often. And I was still pissed at her for, you know, the years before locking me in that cage with uh, my client, uh, the, the umbrella murderer. I laughed at her as she got off the stand because she was a clown. And I laughed in her face saying, oh, good work, you know, fantastic police work. She laughs right back at me and said that she was shocked that the judge didn't suppress all the guns. So she got the last laugh on that one because she was right. Anyway, she didn't get the last laugh overall. Uh, last March, 2021, three men were released from prison after being convicted of murdering a Queens cop in 1996. This was right around the time of the events that I discussed with the umbrella murder and also the search of the city gas offices for guns. The three men had spent 24 years in prison and I'm sure they received millions of dollars in a settlement from New York City for their uh, illegal convictions after they were released. And in this case, the supposed confession from the defendants was done by this cop, this Queens cop. She extracted from the, the defendant, uh, which was parts fabricated, parts coerced by threats and physical abuse. And uh, the case ended up getting dismissed because these guys were actually innocent. What's even worse is that the Queen's DA at the time sought the death penalty for these three men, even though they were actually innocent and were uh, the victims of a corrupt detective and corrupt prosecutors in Queens. This, this stuff actually happens. And this wasn't the first time that she had framed an innocent man or caused the city to pay out millions in settlements. Previously, she had done this and the man spent two years in prison before being released and settling with the city. Now, none of this information was given to us when this detective was cross-examined in our case with the city gas gas station's owner, so she was allowed to appear before the jury as a clean detective, and the jury never got to hear about her history of framing innocent people, because all this stuff came out years later. This trial was in January of 1999, and her corruption was in the 90s, and none of it came out for a long time. So none of that stuff came out, which was sad. In that case, also in the city gas gas station owner, federal death penalty case, the main cooperator, a supposed hitman for the city gas owner, his name was Marvin Dodson, and he was arrested by the Queens cops, the same people. And uh, we had heard that he'd been arrested. Uh, the owner of the gas station called me up, I think it was on a Saturday, and said, they arrested Marvin, can you get him out? You know, we didn't even know what he was arrested for. And uh, I had to go find him so that I could get him processed, or actually he was being processed, that I could get him to a bail hearing and try to get him out and just reassure him that I'm, I'm here to represent him and, you know, I'm a lawyer for City Gas. But somehow the guy wasn't in the system. I'd call up Central Booking. Nope, we have no arrest, nothing. For hours, there was just no sign of the guy at all. I knew he was arrested because uh, people told me they saw him getting taken away in handcuffs by Queens cops. But somehow his name never ended up in the system. Why? Because the Queen's detectives didn't want a lawyer, a private lawyer, to speak to him. No. They brought him to a hotel room instead of central booking or a police precinct. 
And this way they could coerce him, pressure him, threaten him into cooperating. And guess what? Eventually he did. And when he finally appeared in the system and I could track him down, it was too late. He was already cooperating with the feds. This kind of stuff happens routinely in New York for decades. And you're thinking, well, this, this lawyer's crazy. Well, it's not true. In a more recent case, I had a New York City detective that I represented was charged with receiving bribes from karaoke bars. He was being paid off to let them know when there were going to be police raids. This arrest occurred in 2015. So this is like decades later. And he was arrested, but was not put into the system as well. Instead, well, guess what? They took him to a Queens hotel. And for four hours, he was secretly questioned by cops and, uh, and, and also by a prosecutor who was on the line as well into the room. And they delayed it for hours before he was arraigned. And they're pushing him hard to cooperate against other cops. And he made numerous requests for a lawyer. They actually taped some of this. And we got our hands on the tape. And you can hear the detective asking uh, for a lawyer. And they're not giving it to him. So he said he wants his union lawyer, because the union gives you lawyers, and he knew the lawyer. But then uh, the arresting officers and the assistant district attorney that's working on the case, they relented. But what did they say to him? No, don't use your union lawyer. Here's the yellow pages. They handed him the yellow pages and told him to pick a lawyer from there, that he shouldn't use his union lawyer. Why? Because they thought that the union lawyer would advise him not to cooperate. All of this was recorded. I mean, if you can believe this, they actually recorded an illegal interrogation, and we finally got our hands on it, and it was revealed that it was the prosecutor who was handling this prosecution who told the arresting officers to tell my client not to call the union lawyer. How sick is this? This was just a few years ago. Naturally, we moved to dismiss all the charges in the case. And, uh, you know, I was just shocked because I had my own personal dealings with the dirty Queens uh, DA's office and also uh, the precincts in Queens years before. And they're still doing the same illegal crap. So we said to the prosecutors, look, if you don't, uh, you know, we're, gonna, we're willing to meet you somewhere in the middle. He was charged with a bunch of felonies. They wanted jail time. He said, look, we'll let him plead to a misdemeanor with no probation, no jail time. Otherwise, we're going to push this thing to a hearing and we're going to blow this up. We're going to reveal what your office did illegally. The prosecutors, the detectives, they wouldn't budge. So we made the motion to dismiss. <clears throat> and once I think it was in print and uh, all the allegations and the misconduct was out there and it hit the newspapers, suddenly the Queens DA's office gave in and we got our plea to a misdemeanor. But there are literally hundreds, if not thousands, of dirty prosecutions in Queens over the years. I can think of another story. Um, you know, in 2005, when I had the Gotti trial, all the government witnesses testified uh, that if they lied on the stand, these are all the, the rats, all the cooperators, the, the former mafia people, if they uh, lied on the stand, that their cooperation agreements would be ripped up. And that's what they testified to in front of the jury. And that's a standard thing the cooperators say. Every cooperator says it, and yet every cooperator lies under oath. Every last one of them. I've never had a cooperating witness who I've cross-examined not lie his ass off during cross-examination under oath 
with a cooperation agreement that says, if you lie, this will get ripped up. And in the Gotti case, I mean, we just caught them in lie after lie. And during the summation, the government didn't even deny it. They didn't even deny that these guys lied. I said it in uh, my summation that I actually had guaranteed in the opening statement that the government's witnesses would get caught lying, and they did. And that the government, when I said it in the summation, the government, when they get up here, they're not going to admit that their cooperators lied. They would never dare. And they didn't. They got up and did their summation and never mentioned it. But none of the cooperating witnesses got their cooperation agreements ripped up, despite getting caught in lies. So I actually ended up ripping up one of theirs myself during my summation, right in front of the jury. I just ripped it up and tossed it up into the air, the pieces. And that was the only I remember saying, I can remember it now, it's been 17 years later, that this is the only ripping of cooperation agreements that you're ever going to hear in this courtroom, and it's not going to be done by the government. The cooperators testified in that case that they had believed that they'd be spending decades in prison for all their crimes, which included murder. And when I remember asking them about Sammy Gravano, and he's a famous Gambino family cooperator, he was the the underboss uh, under John Gotti Sr., Um, he killed 19 people and only spent five years in prison. And I asked the cooperators, you know, who were actually in Gravano's crew at one point when he got arrested. One of them, Frank Fapiano, claimed that he was unaware what sentence Gravano had actually received. Like, this was never discussed in mafia circles? Sammy Gravano was one of the biggest mob cooperators ever. And this guy actually had the balls to testify in front of a jury that he had no idea what Sammy had gotten as a sentence. It was all over the news. There were books written about it. Well, I remember asking uh, him, do you think you'll be getting out soon? You know, every one of them to a man denied it in front of the jury. And naturally, as soon as the trial was over, they all got out of prison, you know, forthwith, within months, many of them. And I can think of another story off the top of my head in the Chapo case, the government turned over like warehouses of evidence, documents, tapes, and in all the discovery, the government stuck in one tape, which had Chapo speaking in Spanish. He was recorded by one of the cooperators, and it was obviously in Spanish. And there was no labeling in the discovery, in the massive discovery, that this was Chapo's actual statement. They didn't label it. They didn't point it out. It wasn't in any discovery letter like, here's an audio tape of your client. We found out about it. Just as the tape was about to be played, they pull it out and they said, okay, judge, we're going to be playing this for the jury. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. They handed us a transcript. I had gotten into the case two or three months before the opening statement. So I certainly had no time to go through all the discovery in full. Not that I even remotely could have done it, you know, even if I had months. But the other lawyers that were in the case were in well over a year and they didn't find it. And when the government was about to play the tape, I like tried to play it cool. I slowly walked over to the other lawyers, put my hands on my hips and whispered to them, did you know about this? Like maybe this, this was an important piece of evidence that maybe we should have highlighted. And I at least should have talked about in my opening statement. If I had no idea what was even going to come out on this tape. And the lawyers looked at me and they're like, we had no clue. Then I walked up to the prosecutor and I asked her about it and I said, where, where is this coming from? And she smirked at me and said, well, we didn't label it on purpose. We didn't really want you to find it. Actually, send that to me. That's, you know, this is fairness. They have 87 cooperating witnesses or whatever it was. 
They had mounds and mounds and mounds of evidence they put on for months, and they were afraid to let us find out about a simple tape with Chapo talking on it? But this is what we're used to as defense lawyers. This is what very ambitious prosecutors and law enforcement officers do every day in America. Every day. And I think I talked about Jimmy Henchman, um, the case in which the music mogul was convicted of murder in federal court, also in the Eastern District of New York. And uh, I was his lawyer for many, many years. And every time we heard that there was a witness that was being either arrested and que- or questioned in the MDC in the prison in, in Brooklyn about Jimmy, we'd go visit him and I'd bring an investigator. And I've told this story before on the podcast. I went to go see one guy named Black. His nickname was Black. Real name was Henry Butler. And I brought an investigator as a witness. And he was very unhappy that with the lawyer that he had. It was a fellow named Jason Russo. He called him, I think, a 10-cent lawyer. And he wanted a lawyer like me. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm representing Jimmy. Well, tell Jimmy I want a better lawyer. And he's got to do it. I'm like, listen, dude, we don't, he's not in any position. We're just here to see how you're doing. I just want to hear what happened. And that was it. And I made it very clear that we're not paying for the guy's lawyer. And that was it. And uh, the government, when Jimmy gets arrested, the government comes back and says, well, Black said that you told him that not to cooperate with us anymore and that you'd get him a lawyer. And I'm like, it just didn't happen. You know, I would never do that. I'm going to, I'm going to throw out my career over this case. And I also had an investigator. I had a witness that was there. And one prosecutor who's got some major job in, uh, in New York government now, I'm not going to mention her name. She said, I know you'd never do this. I, you know, I know you've long enough. I know you'd never do that. And I said, well, then why are you using it as a basis to disqualify me? She said, well, because we can. She says, that's what he says. And I don't think it's true, but that still makes you a witness. Your lawyer, his lawyer, Jimmy's lawyer is going to have to cross-examine and and uh, try to convince the jury that that never happened, that incident in the prison. So that was, you know, one of the reasons, that was their main reason to kick me out of the case. Of course, when the guy goes to trial, Jimmy Henchman, they never, on direct examination, even asked what happened in the prison when I came to visit him, when, uh, they, when they directed, on direct examination, Henry Butler. So all of this was about nothing, just to kick me out of the case. And it was sick. And the, the craziest part is that the, the other prosecutor on the case was a fellow who became a New York politician, um, a New York state senator. He actually ran for the district attorney of Nassau County and thank God lost last year. But this is the type of people that become federal prosecutors often. They're very, very ambitious. They don't care about fairness or justice. They just want to get ahead. And, you know, becoming a, uh, a state senator, you can imagine the type of person that wants that fucking job. I mean, Jesus Christ, you're just, uh, you'll do and say anything for a vote. And I can, you know, another last story about prosecutorial misconduct. I remember a trial in 2004, a trial that I had with the great trial lawyer, Jimmy LaRosa. It was a mob shooting in broad daylight in Coney Island in Brooklyn. This was Jimmy's last trial. We ended up getting a hung jury at one point, but then the, the jury was t- told to go back and keep deliberating, and they came back and convicted on one of the charges. And this was a, like a tough, but like an impossible case to win, as there were just so many eyewitnesses who even described the shooter's tattoos at the scene of the shooting 
And these were regular people, not mafia witnesses. But we, the one thing that we had going for us, we had one thing going for us, and that was a really uptight, dumb prosecutor. His name was Tom Siegel. And it was our only chance to, you know, somehow muck up the case was due to this dunce's incompetence. So Jimmy just tortured the guy during the trial. And Jimmy was in his 70s and was probably the most respected criminal trial lawyer in New York City at the time. And he could just get away with murder in a trial, you know, things that I still could not get away with. And Jimmy was really, really funny, just so smart, so sarcastic, so quick on his feet, just the best, funniest all-around guy. And he's about five foot five, I would say, all mouth. And I think there was a New York Magazine profile that was written on him, and it was uh, titled The Bionic Mouth. And that's exactly what he was. He was just relentless with his big, smart-ass mouth. So he is torturing this very thin-skinned Tom Siegel. And he would not pronounce his name Siegel, refused to. He, he'd pronounce it Seagal, <laughs> like Steven Seagal. And uh, he's laughing at him to the jury, just constantly making fun of him to the jury, Mr. Seagal. Finally, he, he turns to, to Siegel as we're walking back to the tables after a sidebar. And he says, what's wrong with you? You're like a self-loathing Jew that you don't pronounce your name Siegel, it's Seagal. And the guy just lost his mind. Then he runs up to the judge and tells the judge that Jimmy's making anti-Semitic comments to him. And this is like totally bonkers. I mean, because like, how thin-skinned do you have to be? I mean, every one of Jimmy's friends was probably a Jew. And regardless, mispronouncing the guy's name as uh, Seagal and asking him if he's a self-loathing Jew was not anti-Semitic. It was just to get under his skin. But liberal Jews, which is, I'm sure, what Tom Siegel was, are just the worst. They're so thin-skinned. They're just the worst people. I, I you know, couldn't believe it. And the judge was Judge Deary, Raymond Deary, who's the best dude, just the best federal judge, the most decent guy in Brooklyn. And he's still, he's still sitting on the bench. I just had a case with him recently. And he turns to him and he says, Mr. Siegel, Mr. LaRose is not anti-Semitic. I've known this man for 40 years. What are you talking about? And uh, we were walking back to our seats, and as we are walking back, I turned to Siegel and said, are you out of your mind? Jimmy's half Jewish. How could you say such a thing? He was like, really? And I'm like, no, you dummy. So the trial ended, and, and Siegel was still smarting over the abuse, I think, that he felt that he uh, had endured from us. And I'm sitting in the federal courthouse one day. This is probably a, a year or two later, speaking to a client that, on one of the benches. And Siegel walks by and actually has the balls to say something smart-ass to me in front of the client, which was really wrong. I mean, his office was prosecuting this guy, and he's talking shit to me in front of uh, a client? It's just wrong. I'm thinking, like, how pathetic is this guy that he's still holding a grudge? Now, I, I've told this story before, but the, the next year, I was on trial in a different courthouse in Manhattan. This is a year after the anti-Semitic uh, claim incident. Um, during the Chicky DiMartino and Giovanni Floridia trial in front of Judge Deary in Brooklyn Federal Court. But now it's a year later, and I'm on trial um, with John Gotti Jr. in Manhattan across the river. And Louis Kasman, the uh, self-styled adopted son of John Gotti Sr., who was my client, unknown to me, was wired up and was trying to entrap me into taking cash from him for Gotti trial expenses. And asked me not to file a tax re a form that's required when you receive more than $10,000 in cash. 
I refused and, and quickly realized that he was a rat now, that he was a cooperator. But I was shocked at the time, thinking, my God, these prosecutors who I'm fighting every day with at trial, you know, on the Gotti trial, I didn't, they didn't strike me as that low to wire somebody up on me during the trial. First of all, I thought it was low, but I, I didn't think that they were that low. That was part of it. But the bigger reason why I didn't think that they would do it is that they could jeopardize a conviction if they got one. You're having a government cooperator tape a trial lawyer during a trial and ask about his strategies? I mean, it couldn't be more unethical and illegal. So I remember thinking, who could possibly be this twisted to do something like this? And I'm thinking, God, it's got to be Tom Siegel, because he's really the biggest scumbag that I had ever dealt with as a prosecutor, the biggest lightweight scumbag. So I figured, you know, who else could have done it? So a few years later, uh, Louis Kasman was in fact exposed as a cooperator who taped me and other people while he was working for the feds. He didn't get anybody arrested because he was too stupid. But when I read the FBI report, it's called a 302 report about his taping of me, who was the prosecutor whose name was on it, who was in charge of Louis Kasman and ordered him to do it? Tom Siegel. And he was just, again, such a distasteful, dishonest turd of a human being. He ended up leaving the U.S. Attorney's Office, and now he's an author. He, he writes novels, if you can believe it, although he, I think he's written two. The, uh, the second one is about to come out. It's been years, I think, since his first one. I guess he's a very slow writer. This is the breathless blurb about his latest book. Award-winning author, I guess the award he got was for cleaning his plate. Award-winning author and former mafia prosecutor Tom Siegel pits a movie star and a mob boss against the ghost of J.D. Salinger in a riveting contest of wills. I mean, is that not the stupidest fucking idea for a book you've ever heard? Nice second career, asshole. Huh. Okay, now I'm not going to take a break right now and I'm going to go right into it because I'm a little bit fired up about what's going on in the news. This, this trans uh, stuff, it's, it's, is it me or is it reaching just new levels of insanity lately? We're having teachers in Florida that are quitting their jobs. They're teaching kids, but they want to quit their jobs. And why? Because of a new Florida law, the so-called the don't say gay law that says public school teachers may not instruct on sexual orientation or gender identity in grades kindergarten through third grade. It just seeks to restrict the discussion of sexual orientation and gender identity with public school kids that are like seven years old, kindergarten through third grade. It does not say the law that you can't say the word gay. Now, I don't know what the damn problem is about this, but remember that, that the majority of not only Florida voters, but all Americans support this law. 62% of all Americans say, you know, we don't want that stuff taught to our kindergartners through third graders. I mean, why would we want them to hear about sex issues? I don't know what your grammar school was like. But my first grade teacher, I still remember, I was, what, six years old? Mrs. Diodario was her name, Diodario. She was like 90 years old and, and you know, she was so old. She probably was like 60, but she was really old looking. She had no discernible female sex organs at all. Not that I could tell of. And she never spoke about her family. She never spoke about her husband, her wife, if she had one, her kids, her car, her weekend, her vacations, anything. She just taught us how to read. 
that was it. She just taught us. She was boring and she taught us for a year. What I remember about her is that she used to constantly blow her nose in tissues and then stick the used tissues up the sleeves of her dress. She was a teacher. She was not an advocate. She was not a brainwasher. She was just a teacher. That was it. I don't want my kids being taught about trans people when they're seven years old. I'm sorry. You can brainwash them when they're older. I don't want, you know, their teachers wearing shirts that say protect trans kids on it. I want school to be an innocent place. I don't think that's asking so much. So these uh, LGBTQXABCDEF teachers in Florida are quitting because they can't discuss their same-sex partners or they're frolicking over the weekend with them. You Go ahead and quit. I don't care. Who wants this shit in our faces anymore than it already is? Do you know what percentage, by the way, of Americans are actually trans? I, I did some research. It's like one out of 200 people. That's what the polls say. And I don't even think it's that high. I think that, that liberals probably lie on these polls in order to give trans people more representation. Now, at Disney, one out of 200 people. At Disney, the uh, diversity and inclusion manager said that the company has eliminated all mentions of ladies, gentlemen, boys, and girls in its theme parks in order to create that magical moment for children who do not identify with traditional gender roles. This is one out of 200 people. That's who we're, we're catering to. Disney corporate president Carrie Burke says, quote, as the mother of one transgender child and one pansexual child, I support having many, many LGBTQIA, whatever the fuck that means, characters in our stories, and wants a minimum of 50% of characters to be LGBTQIA and racial minorities. I mean, do, do you actually believe that leftists are not brainwashing their kids to become this? How is it that this woman has one pansexual child and one transgender kid? I don't even know what pansexual means. Does that mean you have sex with like pots and pans? These are kids. And what are the, what are the odds that she'd have two of them? It's like hitting the leftist lottery three days in a row. She pushed this garbage on them, and now she's pushing it on the rest of us, down our throats, because this is what their agenda is. This is their crazy leftist agenda, and we don't want this from Disney. It's the happiest place on earth. Can't we have anything innocent anymore? All I want is ice cream in the shape of, of Mickey's head with the big ears. I want that blue milk at the Star Wars bar. I don't want this shit in my face. And again, I don't care what people do in their bedrooms or if they want to dress up like men when they're women. But the USA Today's Woman of the Year is a biological man, that, that trans thing, uh, Rachel Levine. She's, he's an admiral in Navy. Then you have the NCAA female swimming champ is a man, I mean, a woman, but a, a man with a penis and no breasts. Leah Thomas. Is this the equity and equality we keep getting told is the main goal? Does it sound like that's equitable to women? Fair to women? They're being sacrificed on the altar of po political correctness. One out of 200 people. And Joe Biden can't shut up about it. He said last week that his administration is standing up for transgender Americans against hateful bills being passed at the state level and that he is committed to advancing equality across society. What is so hateful because we don't want seven-year-olds 
to have to hear about men cutting their penises off and wearing dresses. I don't think it's hateful. Quote, this administration is standing up for you against all these hateful bills, and we're committed to advancing transgender equality in the classroom, on the playing field at work, in our military, and our housing and healthcare systems. I'm sure that the girls, by the way, on the playing fields and the swimming pools feel that letting Chewbacca swim against them is really equitable to them. Biden said everywhere, simply everywhere, the federal government's going to become more inclusive for transgender people including the use of a new ex-gender marker on U.S. passport applications beginning April 11th. An X? What the f- What is that? An X? That's your sex? What, what am I? Am I a Y? Am I a Z? Am I an R? X. And also, uh, the new airport TSA scanners are going to be gender neutral. I wasn't even aware that they were, they were you know, gender at all when you go to the TSA scanners. Everybody walks through the same one and puts their arms up, right? You walk through and they're looking for metal. Biden said that at airports, changes will be made to screening scanners, uh, along with the introduction of uh, the X for travelers going through TSA pre-check who do not identify as male or female. The TSA agents will receive new instructions on how to make screening procedures less invasive. And they're going to be more inclusive working with airlines to promote acceptance of the ex-gender marker. How is checking at the airport for metal, for a gun, for a weapon, how can it be less invasive if you're trans? If you're a trans woman, that means you're a man that dresses like a woman. How do you make that less invasive? I mean, aren't you looking for metal? You want equity and equality. Shouldn't everybody get the same treatment? What, what do trans people have in their pants? that it might be invasive if it's checked. What metal is going on down there? I don't get it. I mean, I, I guess I'm missing something, but actually, you know, I don't want to know the answer. I, I don't want to know the answer to this question because I don't want to puke in the middle of this podcast. Anyway, Biden tried to reassure any transgender person who is struggling, telling them to remember, you are not alone. You're so brave. You belong. And we have your back. That's what an American president said. It's one out of 200 people, maybe. They're allowed to swim against the girls acting as a girl when they're six foot five and still have a, a, a gherkin attached to it. And that's brave? Beating up on little girls? When you're a gorilla? And, and one day last week was International Trans Day of Visibility. How much more visible are they going to be? This is what the Secretary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services said. I say to our transgender communities, we see you, we stand with you, and we'll be there for you. For the first time in history, the transgender flag is flying in front of a federal agency, the Hubert Humphrey Building, which houses the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Why do they have their own flag? Is the American flag not good enough for them? One half of 1% of people need their own flag? Get the fuck out of here if you need your own flag in America. We have one flag here. That's it. That's it. On Friday, a Los Angeles court found that a, a California law mandating that publicly traded companies include people from underrepresented communities on their boards, they declared that that law was unconstitutional. They ruled in favor of a conservative group which sought an injunction, injunction against this measure. The law, which was passed in 2020, 
requires that publicly traded companies with a main office in California appoint at least one member of the Asian, Black, Latino, LGBT, Native American, or Pacific Islander communities to their boards by the end of 2021 through either filling a vacancy or creating a new one. How utterly bonkers is this? This is like the Rooney rule for football now being applied to publicly traded companies. Can't shareholders who actually own the companies do what they want with their property? Can't football team owners do what they want with their billion-dollar assets? The left is, left is insisting that affirmative action just, it just seep into everything and ruin everything. It's bad enough that American universities are getting dumbed down by not requiring standardized test scores anymore in an effort to make sure that minorities who don't do well on these tests, that they can get into these top schools, even though they're not as smart as the other kids. Is that the kind of stigma we want to put on these kids? I mean, come on. Is it fair to the kids who work their asses off to succeed? And now they're being penalized for working hard because they happen to be white. And I don't care if, and even black kids that do well at score well, why should their scores not count? And other kids from the same communities that didn't do well, well, now you're all on the same level playing field. And I don't care if schools take some minorities. They should take some minorities. They should take, make sure there's some diversity in the student body because you don't want kids not to have any experience with anybody except for people that look like themselves. But make them all take the standardized tests. Make the kids all compete on the same level playing field. You think the professors in these colleges are going to be happy teaching kids who don't belong there, who can't do the work? Oh, stuff like nuts. Listen to this. This is crazy. Facebook has added more than 50 custom gender options for users who don't identify simply as male or female. 56, actually, different options if you can't decide if you are a man or a woman. Because you know how I decided if I was a man or a woman? I looked in my pants. Let me look. Hang on a second. Yep, I'm a man. Now, here's some of the 56, agender, bigender, gender fluid, gender nonconforming. I don't even know what that means. You're nonconforming? What does that mean? Like, hey, guy, hey, fuck you, man. I'm not a guy. Okay, okay, lady. I'm sorry. Hey, fuck you. I'm not a lady either. That sounds like gender nonconforming. Gender questioning. Uh, sir, are you a man or a woman? Well, let me check my pants. Look inside. I can't tell. That's gender questioning. Gender queer, not just regular queer, gender queer. Neither, neither. Trans masculine, that means like really masculine, I guess. And two spirit. Two spirit, that's actually a gender identity. I bet you didn't know that. Two spirit. Do you think there's a single two spirit person in the entire solar system? I'm going to guess no. We have 8% inflation, supply chain issues that are leaving some stores uh, with empty shelves. Uh, the left is still trying to mask people. Russia is slaughtering people in towns and one town after another, leaving their bodies on the street and threatening us with nukes. And the Democrats are concerned about having the backs for one out of every 200 people who are born or not born, but are trans. Is this our most important issue? Putting an X on your passport to note that you're not a man or a woman. America does not want this shit in our faces. And the left doesn't care. They simply don't care. You'd think that they would care if they were concerned about ever winning 
another election, but they don't care. They don't seem to be worried. And why is that, do you think? Well, I'm going to explain it to you now. Lucky you. In the middle of all of these disasters going on at once, for some bizarre reason, Joe Biden announced that the administration will be terminating the Title 42 public health policy that was used by both the Trump and Biden administrations to quickly expel migrants at the southern border. This is starting to be used at the beginning of COVID during the outbreak. This policy is going to end at the end of May. And it's going to trigger a massive migrant wave in the coming months. What they did is, you know, the order was implemented by the Trump administration during, at the beginning of the COVID outbreak, and it was used to expel a majority of migrants at the border. And it was a a public health order and wasn't an immigration policy, but it became one of the central border policies in place as the U.S. faced, you know, a continuing crisis of numbers at the border. What it did is it allowed them just simply to turn these people back. And Biden, of course, didn't turn back any kids. He just turned back single adults. So he already had started uh, by getting rid of it. But in February, just this past February, approximately 55% of migrants were returned due to the order rather than being released into the U.S. Well, all those people are going to start coming in now. They're not going to be turned back. Naturally, who do you think pushed for it? The Democrats pushed to have it end. Because the more illegal immigrants into America, the better it is for them. They get to destroy America and then turn these people into votes, and then they'll win election after election. It doesn't make a difference if what they're doing is disgusting and everybody hates it. They're going to have all the votes. Quote, this is a momentous day for immigrant rights activists and immigrants and refugees everywhere. That's a quote from Representative Pramila Jayapal. She's the... uh, the squad member with that face. I'm trying to describe what her face looks like. Uh, she's not the bald one. She's not Rashida Tlaib. She's not Omar. She's the one who has a face that looks like my ass. That's who uh, she is. Now, before the surge even starts, reports are out that there have been over 300,000 recorded gotaways since October 1st, including more than 62,000 just in March Just this past month, that's 2,000 per day. Those are the illegals that are walking into America and are not being stopped. We don't know their names. We don't know where they are, but we know that they're here. 62,000 illegal immigrants evaded Border Patrol agents in March. I'm saying it again. About 2,000 a day, and that's according to multiple Customs and Border Protection sources. That shows the extent to which the Border Patrol agents are already overwhelmed before Title 42 ends, before the massive uptick is going to start in a couple of months. Known gotaways are migrants that are seen on cameras, they're seen on sensors and other means, but there's just no manpower to get these people. Multiple Border Patrol officers stated on the record that ending Title 42 would lead to what one agent described as a, quote, surge on top of a surge. As word spreads among migrants, they will not be deported. They also believe that there's going to be a considerable number of migrants just waiting in Mexican cities for Title 42 to end. And then they'll move in because they can walk right in. And even uh, former Obama Department of Homeland Security Secretary Je Johnson, Je, that's his name, Je, you want a guy named Je to depend on, J-E-H. He said about the Biden border crisis, quote, we're struggling right now. These are very large, large numbers, unsustainable in my view. He said that a a thousand apprehensions a day overwhelms the system. Now the Biden administration says there could be 18,000 
per day. We're about to have a border crisis unlike anything we've ever experienced, Jet Johnson said. A source within Customs and Border Protection who's worked in law enforcement told Fox News that Homeland Security is bracing for as many as 500,000 migrants in the six weeks following Title 42 being lifted. If half a million people come in one month, that's an emergency. There is no way we have enough federal agents, this source said. One idea that's being floated is pulling medical personnel from Veterans Affairs to assist. So basically, we're going to take medical services away from people that really deserve them, veterans, and we're going to give it to give free medical attention to a bunch of illegals. And you know corners are going to be cut. You know we're not going to know who's coming in. These people are going to come in with diseases. Terrorists are going to come in. Criminals are going to come in. But the Democrats don't care. They want these people in our country. They hate America. How else could you, you, you think? What else could you possibly believe? We can't afford to feed people now. And we're going to deal with this wave of illegals? The most hilarious thing about all this is that the poor people and middle class who vote Democrat, they're the ones being destroyed by the inflation. They're the ones who are going to be the most hurt by all of these illegals coming in and taking from them. It's not going to affect me. It's going to affect them. Democrats don't care. They want more people to give free shit to so they can get their votes. Why else do you think they keep doing things that they know the rest of America doesn't want? They don't care. They need the votes so they can keep getting elected. Now, my last uh, quick story for the day is uh, I can't, I can't avoid this, man. I can't quit him. I can't quit him. On Friday, a Staten Island judge, it's about masking. It's about our New York City mayor. A Staten Island judge on Friday in response to a lawsuit by a group of parents about masking children under the age of five. The Staten Island judge knocked down Mayor Adams' mandate, calling it arbitrary, capricious, and unreasonable, which of course it is, as these children have the least likelihood of getting sick from COVID, and no other New York student is required to wear a mask, just kids that are under five. Even Mayor Swag went maskless at a party a few days ago. He was on video, he was swaying to the music, he had his silk pocket square in, he was swaying, he was in the club. And despite the fact that he's at much higher risk than a two-year-old would be to COVID, you know, for hospitalization or death, Mayor in the club claimed that masks were unnecessary, excuse me, were necessary for babies because they're too young to be vaccinated. So he's only concerned about the unvaccinated, apparently, and that's why he's making these little kids who otherwise have no chance of getting very sick. That's why he's making them wear masks. But it's somehow okay for Kyrie Irving to play basketball without a mask. He's not a baby, but babies have to wear the masks. Now, can you guess what Mayor Many Bracelets likes more of, basketball or babies? Uh, I'm going to guess basketball. And kudos to attorney Michael Chessa, the father of a three-year-old daughter who brought this lawsuit against the city. Won it and then lost uh, in that it's being stayed. Of course, the babies in preschool have snack time, they have nap time, all sorts of breaks when they're not going to wear their masks anyway. I mean, I'm sure they're pulling them off constantly. They don't understand why they got to wear the masks. So the masking is just a fiction, just to torture these kids anyway. I guess that COVID takes naps when the kids do. COVID takes snack breaks. But Mayor Adams likes to be in control, so he makes these ridiculous decisions which make zero sense, and the judge called him on it. And as I said, he appealed it on Friday afternoon, and a, an appellate court granted him a stay, which means the masks go back on for the preschoolers 
The only place in America, I believe, where kids are still forced to wear masks are New York City preschools. Do we care at all, by the way, that these babies that have been masked and, you know, in daycare, that studies are showing that their language skills are being affected by the masks? We don't care because this is all about politics. It's all about control. This is the crap Mayor Silk Pocket Square is concerned about. Crime? He's not so much concerned about crime. He keeps claiming that New York City is back, but it's not true. If you lived here, you'd know that it's not true. It's an utter dumpster fire. Hilariously, this is the, the best story. I saved the best for last. Prospective New York University students and their parents are getting harassed by beggars and homeless on student-run tours, and they're even getting assaulted. One group was pelted with eggs last Monday, standing outside the Goddard Hall dorm in Greenwich Village. And from the New York Post, it said that in one shocking display, in view of several tour groups, a homeless person laid down in the middle of West 4th Street in what the guide said might have been a suicide attempt. Quote, every single day something is happening, the guide said. Our duty is to sell the school to showcase our campus, and obviously being harassed is not something you want to deal with on a daily basis. He said that visitors to the school where tuition, room, and board ranges anywhere from seventy-eight dollars to $84,000 next year are not too pleased. Quote, you can see them visibly disgusted and say, I don't want to apply here. I don't want to apply here because I feel unsafe, the guide said. Of course you can't go to school in New York City with Mayor the Club in charge. New York City is very dangerous right now. And he's dancing in the club and he's masking babies. He doesn't care about crime. He cares about swag. That's what he cares about. You can't expect him to do anything about crime. He's basically Bill de Blasio in blackface. That's really the truth. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. I appreciate your patience with me today. And uh, if you have any feedback, you can email me at beyondthelegallimit.com. You can find me on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, if you want to rate me and give me five stars because I'm so entertaining. And otherwise, I will see you next week, same time, same bad channel.